So, good morning. Uh, we are continuing our worship service, and we are now going to continue with the series of lessons that we've been doing from the book of Romans, looking particularly at the idea of living life together. Uh, that title comes from the Bonhoeffer book published in 1939, Life Together, and it deals with how we as a collection of vastly different people from different walks of life can be united together into one family. And how that is actually at the core of what the gospel does for us. The gospel, yes, there are future blessings of the gospel, absolutely. There's the gift of, of going to heaven and there is a, a, the gift of, of being justified and vindicated on that final day at the last judgment and that's all wonderful. But there's also ramifications right here and now of the gospel and one of those is that there's this unity that the world has never seen before. That people from different walks of life, whether you're Jew or Gentile, which is the controversy that we'll be looking at, or in our day, any race, any socioeconomic background, any nationality, could be united as one family by the gospel of Jesus Christ into life where you live life together. And the book of Romans is Paul's 16-chapter uh, description and argument as to how that happens, how the gospel unites people, whether Jew or Gentile, into one family by the power of the gospel. In fact, when you begin the book of Romans, there's a very famous verse, uh, Romans chapter 1, verse 16 and 17, which is often called the, the theme verse for the book of Romans. It's the verse in which Paul says that he is not ashamed of the gospel. Here it is, uh, Paul writes, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it that is the gospel, is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, meaning by, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. Uh, that's kind of a, an interesting translation that we'll talk about here in a second. And then he, he, he justifies this by saying, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So in this passage, Paul lays out pretty much every one of the key ideas and concepts that he'll spend the rest of the book of Romans talking about and writing about. That idea of not being ashamed of the gospel is an interesting one. Uh, it, in the ancient world and in the ancient Roman world, you lived in an honor-shame culture. And saying that I'm not ashamed of good news would be fairly obvious. You know, people aren't usually ashamed of good news. If the gospel is good news, you wouldn't be ashamed of it. Why would Paul have to write that about the gospel that he's presenting? Because the gospel that he's presenting is something that would be considered shameful to many people. The gospel that he is presenting is founded upon the crucifixion of the Messiah, the crucifixion of the one who you claim to be your king. If you wanted to have something honorable, you would say, well, my king is the wealthiest, the most powerful, the one with the greatest military, the one that everyone honors and looks up to. You wouldn't say my king was the one crucified like a common criminal. Let's come follow him. That would be something, crucifixion was something that was wildly shameful. Uh, Roman citizens couldn't actually even legally be crucified. Uh, crucifixion was seen as too dishonorable of a death for a Roman citizen, no matter what crime he committed. So crucifixion was usually preserved for peasants, for slaves, for rebels who stood up against the government, but it was not the type of thing that you could give to a Roman citizen. Like Paul, when he was executed, he wasn't crucified. He was beheaded. That's a more noble death in the ancient world. Well, when you say that the Messiah and the Savior was crucified, that's a shameful thing. It makes him look weak. And yet Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. So the gospel isn't, in Paul's mind, weakness. 
It is through the human view of weakness that the very power of God is able to transform and to deliver people from this world. When he says it's the power of God for salvation, that idea of salvation, it is the idea of deliverance. It's the idea of, yes, there's the salvation in the future, the salvation from the wrath to come, the salvation from sin and death, but it's also the salvation from the plagues of this world, the salvation from the sin that holds us as slaves. Just like in the book of Exodus, when they were delivered or saved from Egypt. They were given freedom from darkness, from sin, and from death, and from slavery. Well, that's what the gospel is doing for us. In Egypt, you could argue that the way that God did that was through power. The ten plagues, those were all powerful acts. Well, the way that God does it for us is through the death of Jesus, but then through the resurrection of Jesus, where he demonstrated that through weakness, great power can come. And that power is the seen in the gospel, and that power is how the gospel saves. And it saves, notice that word right there, everyone. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone. That ends up being a key word throughout the rest of the book of Romans. Paul's going to come back to it over and over and over again. Uh, it could be translated simply as all, A-L-L. In fact, it is in other uh, parts in Romans. It's God's power of salvation to all who believe or everyone who believe. And as Paul uses this word, usually what he means by all is Jew and Gentile. Uh, and there's no one left out of that. It means all groups of people, whether you're Jew or Gentile, because he'll often qualify it. Right after he uses the word all, he'll say to everyone or to all who believe to the Jew first and also to the Greek. He will define the all with Jew and Greek. And so to those who believe, and, and for Paul, and we'll see this throughout Romans, belief is not just a mental assent to some facts. It's not just uh, the same as saying, I, you know, like if, if I believe in something and that's it's just a fact that I put somewhere in a file in my brain. Belief is obedient trust. Obeith, uh, belief is allegiance. Uh, and as a matter of fact, that word is often a political word. It's used uh, in Rome to talk about those who would give their allegiance to their Roman king or the Roman emperor. Well, Paul is saying to those who give their obedient faith to Jesus, to those who give their allegiance to Jesus, the gospel is God's power for salvation. And he says this is for the Jew and also for the Greek. We've talked about how in Romans, that's the big conflict. The conflict is how do you get Jews and Gentiles who seem to be, for one reason or another, at each other's throats, how you get them to be united together into one family. And the gospel is how you do that. Uh, we'll see uh, throughout this lesson how Paul begins making that argument, that the gospel is the power to unite Jew and Gentile together. But notice from here, he goes on to say something else about the gospel. The gospel is God's power for salvation to all who are faithful to Jesus, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. But then also it's in the gospel that the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. That idea of the righteousness of God is a key concept that Paul will come back to. And it could, be, it could be thought of in a number of ways, whether or not the righteousness of God is like us doing the righteous things that God wants us to do. But I think as Paul uses it, and I think what it means here is more the quality that God has of being righteous or being just. This is the justice of God. God is just and he does just things. And that's a key idea for Romans because that's one of the questions that Romans is going to be asking. 
has God been just? Has God been righteous to Israel? One of the big problems that uh, was seen with the idea of the gospel and Jesus being the Jewish Messiah is how few Israelites actually became obedient to him, but how many Gentiles did. And if you look at God's promises throughout the Old Testament, there are these promises that are made to Israel. And it's almost like if Jesus is the Messiah, then he's casting off Israel and he's choosing this new group that's mostly Gentiles. And those are going to be his people. And the question is, if God is doing that, is he really righteous? Is he really just? Is he really keeping the promises that he made? Is he really being loyal to his covenant people that he's had a relationship with for so long? Or is he casting them aside for someone better? That's not just and that's not righteous. So what is God doing? And that's a question that the book of Romans is going to spend quite a few chapters answering. Is God just in the way that he has dealt with Israel and the way that he has dealt with the Gentiles? And what Paul is going to argue is that in the gospel, you see that the justice of God is revealed. You can see the justice of God in the gospel itself. And you see that the righteousness or the justice of God is revealed in the gospel from faith to faith or for faith. So I, this is the English Standard Translation that's on the screen right now. Uh, if you look in your Bibles, you'll see that that phrase can be translated a, a number of different ways. The, the NIV, I think, says something like from faith, from first to last. Uh, you'll see that other translations will say from faith to faith. If I were translating it, I would say something like from faithfulness to faithfulness. Uh, I think both of those, uh, that, would, that, would, that is a legitimate translation. And I think you have a, a direction here that's being described. Uh, the from faithfulness means that the righteousness of God is revealed from God's faithfulness. It starts with God, and then it comes to those who are faithful here, to those who give their allegiance to Jesus here. So the righteousness of God is revealed from faithfulness, from the faithfulness of God, down here to the faithfulness of man. And I think you have that direction where in the book of Romans, he'll be describing how the righteousness of God begins with God, but then we can see it as it is revealed through the gospel and we actually get to participate in it. Even though unworthily, we get to participate in the righteousness of God here on earth. And he justifies this by saying, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faithfulness or by faith. In that quotation, it comes from Habakkuk, uh, an Old Testament book, one of the minor prophets, chapter 2 and verse 4. And it's a book that we don't uh, talk about a ton, but maybe we should talk about it more because it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a cool book. But also it's a book that Paul relies upon uh, quite a few times when he talks about faithfulness. And I think if you go back to that question, the question that we were talking about with the righteousness of God, is God righteous? That's the big question that the book of Habakkuk is asking. Habakkuk begins by complaining to God about all of the wickedness around him and how God, if he's really just, should do something about it. And God says, well, I'll tell you what I'm doing about it. Babylon is going to come in and is going to punish Jerusalem. And you're going to see uh, what, what uh, the, the wrath being poured out on sin looks like. And Habakkuk has a big problem with this. And he says, wait a minute, you're, I thought you were too good to look at evil. And yet you're using an even more wicked nation, Babylon, to come and punish us. We're not as bad as them. And so he sees this as a question of God's righteousness and God's justice. Are you really, God, going to allow a wicked nation to punish us? Are you going to let wickedness thrive like that? That's the very tight. Uh, and, and by the way, a Gentile nation? 
to punish a Jewish nation? It's like, those are the types of questions that the book of Habakkuk is asking, and those are the same types of questions that are being asked in the book of Romans. Is God really just? And what Paul is saying by quoting this verse is that even in those tumultuous times, it's the righteous person that lives by faithfulness to God. Even as you are waiting for the revelation of God's justice, even as you're waiting for the answers to those questions, you continue to trust in God and that's how you find life. The righteous one is the one who stays committed and faithful to God as they go through those struggles, as they wait for those answers. And so the book of Romans is going to be trying to give those answers and telling us that it's the righteous one who will live by trusting God, even with those questions, even with the uncertainty. Uh, and so that's the introduction to Romans. And from there, he begins to describe what, uh, what the the means by which the gospel unites Jew and Gentile together. And it's the same way that the gospel unites us today. Uh, as you read through, I think we need to ask the question, Paul says the gospel is for everyone or for all. Why is the gospel for all? The next three chapters, and, and one of the difficult things about preaching through Romans is you could spend years preaching through Romans. I'm going to try not to. I'm going to try to just do a couple of, uh, you know, the first you know, two and a half months or three months of this year. Um, and so we're going to need to cover a lot of ground. And so today we're going to really cover the first three chapters. And that means there is a ton that we're not going to be able to get into, which, which bums me out because I want to get into it. But we're not going to be able to get into. But if you look at these first three chapters, you'll see uh, an emerging point that is, I think, answering the question of why the gospel is for everyone. Why does everyone need the gospel? Well, because the gospel is God's good news of salvation, and everyone needs that because everyone or all have sinned. Uh, in Romans 3.23, it says, for there is no distinction, particularly between Jew and Gentile, there's no distinction with God. Uh, earlier in chapter 2, it says God shows no partiality uh, between Jew and Gentile. There's not a distinction for all and remember how we've defined the word all. It is Jew and Gentile. That's the same, it's the exact same word that Paul uses in Romans 1.16, where he says, it's God's power for salvation to all or everyone who believes. Well, here he's telling you why. Because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. One thing that's interesting about that verse is when it says all have sinned, that's past tense. But when he says all fall short of the glory of God, that's present tense. Not only do all sin and have all sinned, but we all still fail to live up to the glory that God created us to have, the glory that God has. We all fall short of that. That is something that unites us together. We're united, yes, in the gospel as our hope of salvation, but the reason is because we're all united in our sinfulness and our failure as mankind. Paul spends the first three chapters making this point. Notice what he says in a few verses earlier in Romans chapter 3. And again, he's talking about how this is a commonality. Sin is a commonality between Jew and Gentile. He says, For we have already charged that all, that's our key word again, everyone, both Jews and Greeks. So remember, that's how he, that's how he defines the word all, Jews and Greeks, Jews and Gentiles. For all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. Not one understands. Not one seeks for God. All, that's our word, have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even 
one. So Paul here, and the, the second part of this, he's quoting from the Old Testament. But what he's saying is, whether you're Jew or Greek, this is something that we all have in common, is that we are all under sin because we have all become sinners. We have all turned aside. We have not attained the righteousness of God on our own. We, don't, we can't even figure out the righteousness of God on our own. Remember Romans 1.17 says, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. The reason God has to reveal it is because we are incapable of grasping it, understanding it, and accomplishing it on our own. And it comes from his faithfulness to our faithfulness because we're unable of reaching it and obeying it on our own. And so this problem that we have of sin is why the gospel needs to be for all. Why is the gospel earlier? This is Romans chapter 2. He's making the same point. He says, for there will be tribulation and distress for every human being or for all human beings. That, that word every is our key word. For every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. So no, he, that's the exact line from Romans 1.16 where he says it's God's power to salvation to all who believe, the Jew first and also to the Greek. Why? Because there's tribulation and distress for all humans who do evil to the Jew first and also to the Greek. But the flip side of that is there's glory and honor and peace for everyone, that's our key word, who does good, the Jew first and also to the Greek, for God shows no partiality. And so in this, we're seeing that all people, uh, Jew and Greek alike, have been united in sin. And all people, if they did the right thing, they would be blessed by God because God's not showing partiality based on nationality or based on uh, genealogy. The very next verse goes on to say, for all who have sinned without the law will perish without the law. Those sinning without the law, those are the Gentiles. They weren't given the law, you know, the way the Jews were. But then, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. And so that would be your Jews. So whether you have the law or don't have the law, sin and judgment and condemnation is everyone's because all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. So as we consider these things, why specifically is the gospel for Gentiles? Why have they sinned? idolatry is going to be Paul's major answer in chapter 1. Chapter 1, Paul's going to lay out his case against the Gentiles and their sin, and it all comes to uh, a head because of the wickedness that comes from idolatry. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. They turned uh, the, the, the glory of God into an image of corruptible wood and stone. And so when you do that, when you take the glory of the creator God and you turn it into an animal or stone or wood and you worship and serve something that you made, in essence, you become your own God. You become your own source of right and wrong. You become God's creator and God's creator would be God. And so idolatry puts you in charge. And when you do that, you end up changing your whole view of the world to where things that are unnatural seem natural and things that are wrong seem right. So after describing their sin of idolatry, he describes all of these sins that stem from idolatry. He talks about unnatural relations and passions. He specifically he talks about homosexuality and, and how if you're not going to see God as your creator and designer, you can cast off the, the way that you have been designed and you can engage in whatever actions you feel that you want to engage in. He then goes on to give this whole lengthy list 
list of these sins that emerge from idolatry. Unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. He says that they became gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, and not only do they do those things, but they approve of such things. That's the lengthy list of depravity and of sin that Paul describes in Romans chapter 1 that the Gentiles have gotten into. Now, as he gives that list, you could just imagine the Jews reading it, nodding their heads, thinking, amen, that, that is a major problem. They are wretched and awful people who deserve death because of all the horrible things that they've done. But then the question emerges, well, why do Jews need the gospel? Gentiles need it because of their sin. If Jews need the gospel too, what, what do they need it for? And the surprising answer that Paul gives is it's for the exact same reasons. In chapter 2, he switches from talking about they and them to you. They became all this awful way. But then he says in verse, chapter 2 and verse 1, So therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. And when he starts talking about you, he starts talking to the Jewish audience. And he says, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, notice this phrase, you practice the very same things. That whole list that I just gave of all the sins of the Gentiles, you guys have done the same stuff. You can't sit there and act better than them when you have engaged in the exact same things. I, I, you can do this. Get your Old Testament and read through it. And every one of those sins that you saw that he lists against the Gentiles, you can find where Jews have committed all of those exact same things. Idolatry and sexual sins and, and, and evil and malice and all of those things. Like Just read, th read through Judges and you can get them all really quickly. It's like that, that is not only the defining behavior of Gentiles, it's been the defining behavior of Jews also. And so why are they judging Gentiles? Why are they acting so superior? He says, do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Do you think, well, well I'm a Jew and God gave me the law, so obviously I'm different than them and I can, I'm not going to be judged in the same way they are. No, God shows no partiality. That's the point he's, he's building up to here in chapter 2, but we read it a moment ago. Whether you sin without the law like the Gentiles did or you sin under the law like the Jews did, you're all united in sin. And so if he's made the point that Gentiles are, they need the gospel and they can be saved by the gospel because they are sinners and Jews need the gospel, they can be saved by the gospel, but they're all sinners and they've done the same things it's almost like he's saying that there's really no distinction between Jew and Gentile. But is that really what he's saying? Are Jews and Gentiles really the same? And if they are, if they both deserve condemnation and they both are saved in the same way, what's the whole purpose of Jewish identity if they're the exact same as Gentiles? Uh, what is, is there anything that separates them? And Paul's going to start answering some of those questions. Now, as you go through Romans, he will show, you can see it in chapter 3, the first couple of verses, there are some things, yes, that make them distinct. And so he's not going to say that they are completely the same in every way. He is going to talk about some distinctions, but he does not emphasize distinctions that lead to divisions. 
He emphasizes distinctions, but those are not the types of things that would cause them to, to grow apart from one another. Things like maybe circumcision or the mission of Israel or the law of Moses that, that people might hold to feel superior to someone else. He's going to begin to say those are not the types of things that make you better than Gentiles. And so if Jews and Gentiles are really the same, what about the Jews having the law? Now that's, that's a potential question you could ask, and Paul's going to answer it in Romans 12, or sorry, Romans 2, uh, 12 through 16. He says, we read this verse uh, a little bit earlier, but he says, for all who have sinned without the law, that's the Gentiles, will perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law, for it is not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law who will be made righteous or justified. Think about that for a moment, that whether you have the law or don't have the law, what you do matters. It's not having the law that makes you different. It's Gentiles, if they were to do the right thing, even if they didn't have the law, then they're going to be just before God. In Jews, even though they have the law, if they don't listen to it, they're going to be unjust because it's not just having it or hearing it. It's actually doing it that matters. Verse 14, he says, For when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these, not having the law, they are a law to themselves, in that they show the work of the law written on their hearts, their conscience-bearing witness, and their thoughts alternating, uh, accusing them or else defending them on the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Jesus Christ. But there he says, look, if you can have the law and do bad things, and that makes you a sinner— then a Gentile who doesn't have the law, but because of their conscience actually does the types of things, they love their neighbor, they, they uh, do the types of things that the law would call them to do, then, then having the law isn't really a distinction. They do have the law. It might not be written by Moses, but it's written on their heart. It's their conscience and they're doing it. And so having the law doesn't really make you all that separate because uh, you have it, but you didn't do it. Some of them didn't have it, but they did do it. And so in some way they had it, they had it on their heart. So whether it's on your heart or written by Moses isn't going to create a great distinction between you. Secondly, you could ask the question, well, what about the Jewish mission to be like a light in the world of darkness and to, to be a guide to the Gentiles? He's going to begin this hypothetical conversation with a, with a Jewish person, and he's going to be asking him these questions uh, to, to set up this point. Uh, he does this in Romans 2, uh, 17 through 24. And again, he shows that you might have this mission where you are supposed to be the light and the guide to the Gentiles, but you didn't live up to it. And so you have become just like them. Uh, in verse 17, he says, But if you bear the name Jew and rely upon the law and boast in God and know his will and approve uh, uh, the things that are, uh, that are essential, being instructed out of the law, and you are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind and a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, uh, having the law in the law, the embodiment of knowledge and of truth, and you, therefore, who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that one shall not steal, do you steal? You who say one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law through your breaking the law, do you dishonor God? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, 
just as it is written. So he starts off by saying, look, you, th you think that you're supposed to be the guide to the blind, the light to those who are in darkness, the, the source and the embodiment of truth and knowledge given to you because you have the law. And so you're supposed to be all of these great things that leads the world in a better direction. But the problem is you preach it, but you haven't done it. You have said not to commit adultery, but there's adultery in Israel just like there is anywhere else. You, you have said that you shouldn't murder, but there's murder in Israel just like there is everywhere else. It's like you have set yourselves up as this great guide, but you didn't actually live it. So what happens when the Gentiles look at you? They don't see anything special at all about your God. And so because of you, the Gentiles blaspheme the name of God. So you might have had this mission, but because of the hypocrisy, you didn't live up to it. So you can't sit there and fold your arms and act like you're better than Gentiles when you acted just like them and they blasphemed God because of you instead of becoming drawn to God because of you. And so then he asked the question, well, what about circumcision? Well, circumcision is something that separated Jews and Gentiles and made Jews better, right? Well, yeah, let's look at verse 25. For indeed... Circumcision is of value if you practice the law. But if you're a transgressor of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. So it's like, say you're circumcised and then you just ignore everything the law teaches. Well, then it's the same as if you weren't circumcised. Like your circumcision doesn't make you righteous if you then go worship idols and murder and commit adultery and steal and all of that. Like you have to actually still keep the law. Your circumcision alone doesn't do it. So what does that mean about circumcision? I mean, circumcision only matters if you're an obedient person. But then look at verse 27. Or sorry, verse 26. So if the uncircumcised man, that's the Gentile, keeps the requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? So, so if sin could make your circumcision worthless, what about someone who actually lives the right law, the, the right way? He actually does the thing. He doesn't steal. He, he uh, loves his neighbor as himself. He honors his father as mother, but he was never circumcised. If sin can nullify a circumcision, couldn't righteousness uh, create a circumcision? Uh, maybe not a physical circumcision, but verse 27, he who is physically circumcised, if he keeps the law, will he not judge you who, though having the letter of the law and uh, circumcision, are a transgressor of the law? For if he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he who is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart, not by the spirit, or sorry, by the spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God. So what Paul ends up saying is you can make a big deal about circumcision, but circumcision only matters if your behavior is in accordance with it. Uh, and so you can have physical circumcision and your heart be far from God, or you could have an un, not a physical circumcision, but a circumcision of the heart where you actually grow closer to God. And if that's the case, then your circumcision itself it doesn't make you special before God or unspecial. So you really are the same in, in circumcision and in the law and in sin and in all of these things. Not, you're not better than the other. Jews aren't better than Gentiles and Gentiles aren't better than Jews. So what does this mean? Well, the point that Paul's going to end up making, he'll make quite a few points from it. But one thing that he draws as a conclusion, he says, what then becomes of boasting? It's excluded. 
If you're trying to bring people together, you cannot have one of them who thinks they are better than the other. So boasting, pride, self-righteousness, feelings of superiority, and spiritual hierarchies, they destroy unity and they cause unnecessary division. In essence, if you're a sinner, it doesn't mean that you're worse than the person next to you. And if you see someone next to you who's a sinner, it doesn't mean that you're better than them. Here's what sin means. Sin means you're, you're in need of the gospel. And that's true for every single Christian here. When you begin to have a spiritual hierarchy, even though you are a sinner, all that betrays is that you have a prejudice in favor of your own sins and against that person's sins. It doesn't mean you're better. It doesn't mean that God is so uh, indebted to your great righteousness. What it means is you're a sinner who likes your sins and you don't like that person's sins. And so you judge that person more harshly than you judge yourself. And that's a complete misunderstanding of the justice of God, which is revealed in the gospel. If you're a sinner, it means the gospel is for you. And that means as you look throughout the world and you see sinners out there, we probably shouldn't look at them with feelings of superiority, boasting, or arrogance. What we should do is look at them as a world in need of a Savior and in a world in need of Jesus Christ. So as we draw our lesson to a close, our challenge this week is let's give up boasting in all feelings of spiritual superiority. Let's not look at the world or look at one another as though I'm better than you because of how much I've accomplished for the kingdom or how good my sins are in comparison to yours. Let's instead look to God with utmost gratitude and thanksgiving for the salvation and the grace that we have because of him. Because the only reason that we could have any hope at all and any peace and any uh, of the goodness that will transcend this life, it's not because of what we've accomplished or what, because of what we do. It's because of his grace. It's because of the power of the gospel. If there's anyone here who would like to take advantage of the offer of the gospel, if you're watching online and you would like to name Christ as the Lord and King of your life and have your sins washed away in baptism, I bet even through the snow we could make that happen. If you have the need, please let it be known uh, as we uh, draw our lesson to a close. Thank you very much.